Unbeknownst to us in the background, a couple of our competitors here in Ottawa had found out that I'd had a stroke. And so they ran around to all my clients and told them all I was brain dead. Oh my goodness, you're joking. You can't, you can't make it up. Technically, they were, right. it was, they were right, but not for long. Welcome to The Resilient Recruiter. My name is Mark Whitby. My special guest today is David Perry. David is the managing director of Perry Martel International, which was uh, a business founded in 1988, which uh, David founded with his partner, Anita Martel. They're based in Ottawa. Their firm has completed over 1,400 projects worth a combined total in salaries of 393 million. They place executives in technology, real estate, construction, and have been featured in a lot of media, including Fortune Magazine, Inc. Magazine, Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, Washington Post, and many other media outlets. David is a recruiter. He's also a job search coach. He's an author. He's a sought-after motivational speaker. He's the author, in fact, of seven books, which are Hiring Greatness, Executive Recruiting for Dummies. I think that would include me. Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters, and he was presented with the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for Community Service. So, David, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. I'm going to hire you to do the intros from now on. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) My face red. I I can feel it here, but anyway. Oh, great. Well, you've had a long and... uh, Right now, here we go. Okay. All right, excellent. So, David, you're from Quebec City, which is a beautiful city. I'm actually from Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, I've, I've swam with the dingle many a day. Oh, have you? Oh, wow, no. that's that's hilarious. Nobody else listening besides the two of us will have any we'll clue where the, the dingle, dingle is. is. No. Um, so, listen, I decided I'm going to put this out on on uh, July 1st. Um, so, happy Canada Day! Thank you. So, uh, listen, you were referred to me by Rich Rosen. How do you know Rich? Do I have to tell? And well, not if it's going to, you're going to say anything that will incriminate you. Yeah, I think it will incriminate both of us. We're both hard charging headhunters. And I don't remember where we first met. It may have been the Herc. It may have just been online. He may have commented on something that I commented on, you know, sort of whacked me up the side of the head. And I probably beat him back after I ripped his leg off and beat him with his own leg. So that's how these relationships start typically, right? For recruiters. So you met him on uh, on Facebook or something? Probably. Okay. All right. Interesting. Well, listen. Uh, you the combined salaries of the searches your firm has filled three hundred ninety three million. That's kind of mind boggling. What does that work out to in placement fees? It must be around a hundred million or so. Um. God, I wish I charged thirty three percent on all of them. Uh, truth be known, when I started, uh, my first I mean my first couple months as a recruiter back in eighty eight were a little harrowing because I came out of a firm that I'd been with for almost two years. And my second year there, I stayed nine months. And in my second year, in those nine months, I built $758,000. That's not bad for 1988 um, in construction and real estate. Um, But I went out on my own and my boss, you know, immediately sued me and sent me a letter. Now, here's the interesting part. Sent me a letter to let me know that uh, he was going to sue me if I went after any of my clients. So I didn't. I didn't. I actually, uh, when I resigned on the uh, Friday, I worked the next two weeks and he um, locked all my, immediately locked my desk and all my filing cabinets and expected I wouldn't come back. But I did. And I sat there for two weeks. Couldn't get my phone out because he turned my phone off. 
Um, but, uh, you know, he said I couldn't take anything with me, and I didn't. Now, it w- I'm sure he took a conniption. I'm getting to the point in a sec. When he opened the filing cabinet the Monday after, I wasn't there and found out that the files were all there. However, I had shredded them all. <laughs> every single last file. So I stayed within them. Now, I'll tell you why I did this. This is a man who, for the entire year and a quarter I worked for him, because he took over as a managing director. You may have to beat this out. But this man told me every single day, I think he had a list of terms that started with loser and asshole and sort of went to every single day. He told me what a moron I was and I would never amount to anything in my life. Um, how lucky I was that I was working with him. So, you know, Whatever. But I did find out the year after I left that uh, collectively, the five people I left behind collectively billed $116,000. So the 758000 that I billed, I'm getting to the point, I kept fifty-two. So I went out on my own. And within three months, I've made nothing. But my boss decides to take my Rolodex of contacts and send them all a letter that says, David's left, I've taken over his accounts. Uh, if you do business with him, not only will I sue him, I will sue you. Well, oh well. my goodness. So, have you ever been down to Canary Wharf? Yeah. Okay, so I'm the Canadian guy that hired the guys that built the retail section of Canary Wharf. And wow. I, got that, I got that deal because um, my former boss sent a letter to the guys that were building Canary Wharf. And they phoned me up and said, if you've scared your former employer so much, you've got to be pretty good. And I said, well, I, I think I am. And we took it from there. <laughs> so, you know, in 1988, you're asked the question, you know, is it worth $100 million? No. At that time, I started charging $75 an hour. I was so desperate. And it wasn't until I raised my fee to 150 bucks an hour, the same thing they were giving consulting engineers, did anybody take me seriously? So what's this got to do with $100 million? I've done whatever I needed to do to get into a marketplace. You know, I wrote guerrilla marketing for job hunters because I read guerrilla marketing. My budget for my first year in marketing was $21. I spent 17 on this book, guerrilla marketing, and it taught me how to do marketing for little or no money. I mean, that's what caught me. It was guerrilla marketing, 101 ways to market yourself without spending a dime. So I'm in. I spent my 20 bucks, not a dime, and, you know, I started marketing. So that's how I got what I got. And the reason I've kept my rates at 33% is because once you go down, you never go back up. Right. But I, I do deals with clients all the time, you know, but I get something out of it. So if I'm going to charge you 33%, I'm going to get something out of it. But $100 million? No, it's probably closer to, it's probably closer to 45. Maybe, okay. Maybe 50. The last couple of years, last 10 years, it's always been 33%. But uh, the first, no, I remember we hired actually 64 people in a company that was, had 68 people. Didn't hire the CEO, didn't hire the CFO, didn't hire either of their secretaries, but everybody else we hired because we replaced everyone in the company. Wow. And I think that, I think the total fee for that was a, over three years is probably about $400,000. So if you looked at all the salaries and you added them all up, you'd go, that's crazy, man. You left, you know, $2 million on the table. But did I? Seriously, did I? No, I didn't. Because every single one of those came with my ability to uh, spin a story afterwards. Um, and I was in the press on a regular basis and portrayed as a white knight, Robin Hood, good guy, because that's the persona I wanted. Um, so when I trade cash, it's for something. And it's usually looking at, at the next deal. And I, I tell my kids, and I have four children, four adult children, three girls, one boy. 
like pool. Anybody can shoot and sink one ball, but setting up the next four and sinking them, whole different, whole different level of skill. And my kids know this. And I remember taking my son out last year for a pool game. And you stop me, Mark, if I'm way off topic for your group, but uh, we had never played pool and uh, we played the first round and, you know, and he started laughing at me because, you know, I wasn't really any good, but neither were the people I was playing with, right? There was a point to it. And finally, his kidding just annoyed me so much that I just said, okay. And I just sunk the next five shots. And he, and he goes, oh, yeah, I get it now. I said, do you really? Do you? Do you really? Yeah, that's the point. So anyway, off topic. Well, you, get the okay. anyway. you, have, you have so many stories. And um, there's a few things I want to pick up on there. But uh, look, 40 or 50 million in, in uh lifetime cash in, I think I, I would take that. I'd be, I'd be happy with, perfectly happy with that, David. So when you have four kids, it gets eaten quickly. Well, I've got three, so I know about that. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> oh, believe me. That's it. That's it. So um, where, oh yeah, you mentioned guerrilla marketing and that's another thing we have in common because uh, the author that's of the right. guerrilla marketing yeah. books, Jay Conrad Levinson, uh, he wrote a whole, in fact, he coined the term guerrilla marketing and he wrote a whole, whole series, which, which of course you co co-authored one of those as well. Um, I became the, the UK's first certified guerrilla marketing coach. And that was a program that was run. Uh, this is going back about 20 years with, uh, Mitch, uh, Meyerson and, yep. uh, or Meyerson, Mitch Meyerson and, and Jay, uh, Mitch did most of it, but I did have the good pleasure and, and honor of speaking to Jay uh, as part of that program uh, before he, he passed away a few years ago here. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant guy. Oh, he's so, a great guy. Yeah, you must have gotten to know him quite well. How did, how did you end up writing a book together? I live in Quebec. Yeah. You know the politics of the country. I, I'm a, I am a federalist. So that means I root for the good, good guys because in Quebec there's two parties. There's the federalists who believe in a united Canada yeah. and the separatists who want to take Quebec out of Canada. So I'm the one that wants to keep them in Canada. And I've been vocal. I still live in Quebec. I'm a, I, I was born in Quebec City, lived in Montreal, and now live on the Quebec side of Ottawa. I'm a, I'm a rabid federalist. So um, there came a point in time where um, I helped organize a couple rallies, or at least one big rally, to bring people to Montreal when they were doing the last referendum for the yes vote or the no vote. And, you know, we swarmed the city with probably 100,000 people, a lot of buses we organized on Parliament Hill. Um, so as part of this, my kids have always gone to the uh, English school system in Quebec, which means like poor. Poor is like dirt. I mean, this school board has been broken, busted, and broke for decades. And I remember walking on to the playground of my first daughter's uh, junior uh, school, grade one to six. And the only piece of uh, playground equipment they had was a culvert. Now, these are these big cement things you put in the ground to run sewage through. That and a pole that had three basket things on it for basketball. That's the only playground equipment we had on the school. And the school had been around for 48 years. So I became the chair um, and learned a lot more about the school system. So as part of this, I decided that I was going to build, uh, help build or fund English speaking schools in Quebec. Um, so I started the, the uh, Western Quebec 
um, I was called Western Quebec Education Alliance, something like that. I needed to raise money, so I ended up writing a book. I ended up writing a book because along came the uh, referendum, the good guys won, so we got to keep Quebec in Canada. Yay! Um, but uh, Quebecers still didn't fund the English education, so I wrote a book around the same time that the tech industry is falling into the toilet because when Nortel laid off like 8,000 people on a Friday afternoon, I'm in New York City, don't know anything about this. No one sent me a memo. No one asked permission. Um, they just posted a, here's the top 10 list of recruiters from Drake B. Mori did this. You know, they got, I think, $4 million to do the outplacement. And their outplacement was take them in the cafeteria and say, you're not here tomorrow, right? Here's a list of people to go and talk to. We were on the top of the list. So I come back Monday and I'm walking to my office and we're in an old part of Ottawa in a Victorian home. And I've walked past it turns out to be like 800 plus people. And I think oh they're going to, I think they're going to the British embassy to get their passport stamped. I don't know. Right. They're all in suits. Got briefcase. Nope. Follow them, follow them, follow them, follow them right to my door in the Victorian house. And I said, who are these people? The Christine and Nikki. And they said, this is what happened. They told me about the list that got published and we're on the top of the list. So these were all job hunters. Like, Oh my God. <laughs> so wait, 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 let me just get this straight. So Nortel was laying people off. They published a list of recruiters go and talk to your firm was at the top of the list. So you walked into the office in the morning and there was a lineup of 800 people waiting to talk to you. 837. Nikki went out and counted them. Holy cow. She went out and counted them. I sent her on a mission. So we got five phone lines. Can't get a phone line out because everybody's calling in. They didn't walk in. So I decided to go down to uh, Chapters, our lo local bookstore, and uh, make a list of here's the books you should read. Because back in 80, we actually had a website, you know, modest, but we could post a list and refer people to that. So I'm sitting in the bookstore and I read about 10 or 11 books and they're all so old. So I decided to go home and write my own version, like a small little, you know, how to, right? Well, the how to ended up at like 1100 pages and I hired my dad as an editor and he edited, helped me edit it down to about 110 pages. So I liked it. I owed him two boxes of red pen, fucker. And um, so he said, I don't believe it was that many, but anyway, he got two boxes of red pens. Former, former school teacher and naval officer. Anyway, um, I phoned Jay and said, listen, Jay, my name is, and I wrote a book about, you know, and I've read everything you've ever written. Ask me any question. Um, I said, I've just written a book. Would you mind taking a read of it? Seeing what you think. He said, sure. So I emailed it to him. Big file back then. And uh, he calls me back about three days later and he said, uh, I like this. I gave it to my daughter because she's looking for a job. And, uh, and she likes it. It's helping. I said, he said, anything else I can do? I said, well, would you write the foreword? He goes, sure, but I'm an author. He said, so I get paid for writing. I said, well, how much? He said, thousand bucks. I said, done. Checks in the mail. So he wrote, he wrote the foreword for the first book. And, and um, when I gave him his copy, I flew up to Toronto to have uh, lunch with him because he was given a seminar, I think it was for Honda. Um, and I met him, and I'm driving him back to the airport. And I, and I, I jokingly said, so you got to be careful what you say. I jokingly said, you know, we should write guerrilla marketing for job hunters. He thought that was a good idea. So good that he called his uh, agent, who's my agent now, in California and says, hey, we're going to do guerrilla marketing for job hunters. And uh, I got just the guy to do it. So he calls me up, my not knowing this. And uh, Michael asked me if I'd be interested. I said, sure. So I figure I'm going to be a co-author with Jay Conrad Levinson, my hero. Oh, my God. I'm ecstatic. Wait for it. 
So about three months go by and Michael calls me and he says, so how's the book coming? I said, I don't know. So what do you mean you don't know? I said, Jay won't take my calls. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I got to get together with him. We got to build up, you know, the book. And he said, no, no, David, 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 Jay's the brand. You're the writer. And I went, what? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, and the first, you know, and it's overdue, right? So I sat down literally um, for six weeks and cranked out a chapter every four days for Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters, the, the first initial edition, and, um, and sent it in. Uh, sent it to a couple of my friends who I met on RecNet, and they you know, bashed it, and then I would correct things. And I sent it in, um, and Wiley called me back. John Wiley and Sons did the book and said, uh, we love it, but it's, uh, we want 65,000 words, and yours is 119,000, so we're going to cut it up, and you know, we'll, we'll send you it when we're finished editing. I said, no, 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 no. Mm. I will edit it. Well, we need it Monday. I said, that's fine. I will edit it. So I took my manuscript from 119,000 words down to 91,000, sent it in. I told them it was 91,000. And three weeks later, they called me back and said, okay, uh, we've been through it. There's nothing we can take out. So we're going to publish it. But it's going to be more expensive than $14.95. We're going to have to charge $19.95 to account for all the extra trees we've got to plant and that kind of stuff. So that's how we began. And Jay, so I did all the writing. Jay wrote the in, his intro or his, you know, thank you for, you know, thank you, madam, um, members of the, uh, um, of the um, academy for this award sort of thing, which is fine. He is the brand. But that was a massive lesson, right? And, um, but he started to market it. And Wiley had only ever had one hit in the career section. So they were completely out of it. The guy that bought this book from us, the, uh, the editor that bought it from us, the day I handed in the manuscript, he retired. So I had no editor, um, nothing. I had to defend myself with the, the publisher and all, everyone around the review board all by myself. Anyway, they published it and um, they did a short run. They did a thousand copies because that's most books sell 200, 211 copies and the rest get remandered. So they didn't want to waste the money. Well, they didn't tell me that, and I didn't know that, and Jay didn't tell me that, so I'm marketing like crazy, right? Well, you know, it's on Amazon. It sells 4,000 copies the first week, and I got, wow, Wiley. That's amazing. I got Wiley on the phone call. I got Wiley on the phone yelling at me because I sold so many copies of the book, and I said, I don't understand. What's the problem? And that's when they told me that they weren't expecting the book to sell, so they only printed 1,000 copies, and they couldn't get it back on the press for like six or eight weeks. Oh, so man. Means, well, you know what? Well, here's the problem. I put my name and phone number in the book. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> so I'm fielding calls from all over the place from people who are angry because they can't get a copy. This is well before Kindle, right? So, you know, I called Jay up and I said, what do I do? He says, he says, well, thank God. He's Jewish. I'm Catholic. He says, thank God that, it, you know, that's a problem. He says, just don't answer the phone if they call or tell them it's coming or get in line or put in an order. So that's what we did. And the next print run sold out again. So, you know, it was, it was my writing and Jay's, you know, magic with the marketing that produced um, a book that's uh, been quite well used. That's amazing. And that's a good problem to have to, to over, you know, uh, be oversubscribed, right. To have more sales than you can, uh you can ship 
I would rather have that than have sell 211 books and the rest get destroyed. Absolutely. I would have been devastated. I would have been, my feelings would have been hurt. Both of them. So a couple of things that uh, I want to circle back to. One, this situation where you had 800 people that prompted you to, or inspired you to write the book because you looked out there and you couldn't really find anything current that you think would, would help people. When, when was that, David? That was um, 2003. Okay. So and what I, so, so here's what, so that's a part I've forgotten. Sorry. It's, you know, I'm old. Um, so I wrote the book so that I could sell it. Not guerrilla marketing. I could, I wrote, um, I, I wrote, actually I wrote the headhunters guide to the new economy. My okay. dad made me change it because he was worried I was going to get sued by my favorite author who wrote a headhunters guide or sorry, a hitchhiker's guide to the universe. Remember? Oh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My son is reading that right now. I love that book. I love that book. So I wrote uh, Hedringer's Guide to the New Economy. He said, change it, you're going to get sued. So it was called Career Guide. Um, how, Career Guide. It, it used to be in written so many books, you can't remember them. I can't. It was the first one. Anyway, so I, I wrote that and I published it, but electronically. So we were selling it for $40 US online as a download, just a okay. text thing, download. Um, and we were using that money to put into the education foundation that I had started for uh, to t- raise money to teach English kids in, in school, right? Oh, cool. And uh, that raised a lot of money. We were paying $750 a month. This is how old the internet is. $750 a month to get the um, another service to clear the Visa MasterCard because we couldn't get a license for, to do that. Right. Way back in two, this, this predates PayPal. Of course. Um, so that's where that, that's why, that, that's why I did it. It just killed two birds of one stone. Right. I mean, I had no idea. It was, it was supposed to be a, um, a good PR stunt, not even a stunt. It was just the right thing to do. I had no idea it was going to take off like this, you know? And the, the when I, when I jokingly said to, to Jay, you know, we should write guerrilla marketing for job hunters, Mark, I swear to God, I was kidding. And then the next thing you know, you're in the middle of this thing, right? And it's, why not? That's awesome. I like that story. But what happened with these 800 people? I need to hear the conclusion of that. So they're lined up outside. And then what'd you do? And I closed my door. <laughs> I, I, stood, I, well, I stood outside and I said, the, the first husband and wife team, because there was a husband and wife team who got there first, something like 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and this is a Victorian house. And I've got uh, like a, a 300 square foot um, mini office inside this thing. So I took them in, I listened to their story, um, and I liked them, and I did the, I did the wrong thing. I, uh, I found them both jobs, but I, I told them, don't, so, so I'll get in ahead. So I went out in the crowd, I said, I'm going to interview two people, so I got all I got time for. Everybody else went home. And they never came back, which was interesting, right? Persistence? Mm-hmm. Engineers? Not so much. Anyway, um, I... I I placed both of these people into new jobs. And when I did it, I specifically said, don't tell anyone. You have no friends. I don't need the PR. Well, they did. Because they, unbeknownst to me, they had a friend who was a job search coach who started, who let it be known that he knew the headhunter in his private network. He knew the headhunter that had placed Bill and Joanne. And uh, he could introduce them. So, well... You know, you know, well, I don't understand, David. Why did you not want any referrals from that or any recognition? I don't, I don't find jobs for people. Now, having said that, I've, I've done that. I market. I, I, get, I get hired by companies to fill specific 
roles. Every now and then, and you know this, Mark, every now and then, one in a hundred thousand is a real rising star. And that rising star, you can ask them, what do you want to do? Where do you want to work? You can go and create that. You can make that opening happen at the executive level, right? Um, And that's what we do. We still do that. But, you know, 95% of our business is we have a need. We need to solve a problem. You're going to hire the people that are going to solve the problem. So I didn't want to be inundated. I'm not a job search coach, by the way. Got it. I'm not because I I don't have much pity for people. If I tell you what to do and you don't do it, I don't care what the psychology behind it is. Uh, you didn't do it. So you're, it's no longer my problem. It's your problem. And we're never talking again. That's why I wrote, well, I, th- I don't know if you got a chance to go on to the, uh, the new platform, mynewjobhunt.com. No, mynewjobhunt.com. What is that about? So mynewjobhunt.com um, is a platform for job hunters mm-hmm. that helps them much more quickly get a job than doing it the old fashioned way. Okay. Whatever the old fashioned way was. What we did after I launched the second edition of Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters is I started a Guerrilla Job Search Boot Camp. The first boot camp was 49 bucks. I launched this in November of 2009 in Detroit on stage. And um, I usually come out before I speak and do about, you know, half 10, 15 minutes of um, stand up. I can make people laugh, right? And if you make people laugh, you know, you engage them, right? And they're, it's, a, it's a better audience. So I did that. I walk out on the stage of, on the MSU uh, Auditorium in, in Minneapolis. And I, uh, was it Minneapolis? No, that was Detroit. It was, ah, oh, damn it, where was it? Starts with a T. It's a, it's, it's a suburb of Detroit. Anyway, okay. I go out and I do this and no one laughs. No one even smiled. Uh-uh. And, I'm, and I'm looking at the audience and I'm looking through, like, like people are just dead in the eyes. And uh, they had had to pay to get into this um, presentation. It was 29 bucks. We found out later, 29 bucks is a lot of money for a lot of them. A lot of them, their kids uh, put up the 29 bucks. In a couple of cases, their kids drove the parents to the um, presentation and then waited in the parking lot to make sure they actually went in. Wow. I mean, this this is Detroit. Uh, Unemployment at the time was 38.5%. Right. My editor told me, don't go to Detroit to launch the book. Unemployment's horrible. And I said, well, like, that's the point, right? Right. He said, well, if it fails, it fails. I said, well, if it fails, then we shouldn't be selling the book. Anyway, I digress. So we go, I'm, I give this present, I, I go to give the presentation. I'm doing some stand up. They're not laughing. I go backstage and Kevin says, so how are they? So they're all warmed up, ready to go, ready to go. So we go out and 45 minutes into this presentation, people start to laugh and you can see the lights starting to flicker. So an hour into this presentation, we give them a bio break. And at the bio break, I said, listen, before you all leave, you know, to go out and get your snacks or whatever, because the doors are locked and you can't get out. Uh, I said, I'm kidding. They're not locked. You know that. Um, I said, um, I'm going to take seven people from the audience, seven people. I want you to give me $49 and I'm going to put you through a job search boot camp and guarantee you a job. I will work with you until you get a job. 49 bucks. Well, we had trouble getting seven people, uh, but we did. Uh, we didn't have any trouble placing them. So, you know, Kevin says to me afterwards, he says, uh, I'm co-presenting with Kevin Dolan at the time. I'm on the stage with a co-presenter because I'm, I'm about five months after my stroke. And my stroke mm-hmm. had left me without the ability to walk, talk, read, or write. So oh it's the God. first time I'm presenting publicly, and I wasn't sure I could stand on stage and present by myself. So Kevin came with me. Best thing I ever did. We had a blast. Um, so we got these seven people, and Kevin says afterwards, you know, like, 
what job search boot camp? I said, well, this is Wednesday. By Monday, I'll have a job search boot camp. And I went home and I crammed, man, and I created uh, a process. I took everything I know and put it on paper with if then, if then, if then, and created this process. So we've run guerrilla job search boot camps across the U.S. and Canada for the last 12 years. Wow. That's and cool. uh, and we, we have been charging upwards of $4,999. The difference is you come and do a boot camp with us. Most of it's done online, uh, it's virtual. Um, we guarantee you a job, period, full stop. And we'll work with you until it's done. Now, we put 214 people through those boot camps. 212 graduated into new jobs. Two of them we had to work with beyond the 10 weeks as a 10-week program but they graduated as well. Um, but it got really tiring and I, I, I wanted to continue, but I didn't want to do this anymore. I mean, the money's fine, right? I mean, you do the math, right? But uh, it's tiring and it's not what I do. I'm a headhunter and I love that. So we took the entire platform and put it online and put it in the, in, in the cloud. And my partner that I was working with at the time was another Kevin, my best friend. Um, he passed away um, on, um, Canada day six years ago, um, about five hours after he told me he found the flaw in the product and we could now release it. And I said to him, what was it? He says, I'll tell you Monday. And then he went away and he died and he took all the passwords and everything with him and his brother, uh, Dave Watson, his name was Kevin Watson. And I tried for two years to figure out, you know, what the passwords were to get into this thing. We couldn't. And after two years, we finally decided that's enough. So we took the last two and a half years. Dave took a year and a half off. He was a senior engineer at uh, Cisco. Took the last uh, two and a half years to take all of the ideas, the content that we had, and to build a platform that is both a CRM, Mm -hmm. so contact relationship management program. Um, And uh, uh, to sum it up, my new job hunt is, if you're a recruiter, it's salesforce.com for job hunters. If you're a job hunter, it's more like eHarmony. So we'll take you through, well, seriously, we'll take you through a series of questions that we ask you at the front end. You push a button when you join, and it tells you whether or not you have, what your likelihood of graduating is, because we've done this so many times. Um, and then once you're in the program, this is a set it to forget it program. The first week, we teach you how to, how to figure out what you want to do, who you want to do it for, what the messaging has to be for um, the people you want to contact. Uh, we show you how to write a resume, how to do the cover letter so that, and it's a one pager, it's a gorilla uh, uh, resume. So it's a one pager that gets read and gets people's attention. And then we show you how to write um, email messages that you're going to follow up and voicemail messages that you're going to leave. So at the end of the first week, you have everything that you need physically to go out and get a job. And then we spend the next week teaching you all the social stuff, how to set up your LinkedIn profile. Because it's easier to take a call than to make a call, right? It's always been yeah. that way. So at the end of the second week, you do your first activity, and that is to, you do what's called the email chain letter. No one likes chain letters. And we actually, so we've actually written it. You just fill in a couple details. And the chain letter goes out. And the premise is pretty simple. You decide what 10 companies you want to work for. You, you say that in the letter. You tell them why your accomplishments fit that company. You say that in the letter. It's not hard, in the email. Um, and then you send it off to 10 people that you know and respect. And you ask them to, lead, to read it. And if they know anyone that works for those companies now or in the past, because we teach people how to recruit with the newly departed, 
not dead people, newly departed, um, then uh, to call. And if you don't, that's fine. Could you please pass it on to 10 and only 10 people that you know? Well, hmm. it's math, right? 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 10. And so we know this works. And, and the email chain letter is actually responsible in our boot camps and in, in, you know, since, and, since and currently for setting up more first-time interviews than anything we've ever done. Not, oh. the Starbucks, not the Starbucks coffee cup caper, nothing. Not the targeted Facebook ad campaigns, nothing. This email chain letter. So you do that on Friday, and most people who do this um, laugh until they start getting responses. Um, yeah, you can Google it, email chain letter, guerrilla email chain letter. So my new job hunt is set up to be a um, set it and forget it, soups to nuts um, program that tracks everything in the background and reminds you of what you have, what tasks you have to do today to get to the point about two weeks out that you can actually start interviewing with the top 10 companies that you want to work for and you understand why you want to work for them, who can hire you and what you have to say to that person to get them to have coffee with you. Uh, to start a discussion. So that's what my new job hunt is. And, you know, I've been working on that hard now for the last five years. So most of the money that we've made over the last five years has gone into that. And about 60% of my time has gone into that. So my buildings are way down. If I do half a million this year, I, no, I will. But, but that's where our, our, our efforts has gone. Why am I telling you this? Because um, that, the, the job search stuff, the headhunting stuff has allowed me to do what I want to do, which is payback for the life I've had for the last, you know, 40 years. As a recruiter, you know how great the lifestyle is. You know how big a change you have in people's lives. And you can see that spark in their face. I don't know about you, but, it, you know, I, I have that glow that lasts for weeks. Um, and you can't buy that, right? You can't buy that. And as I said to my kids, and you're going to have to cut this part out, I've taught my kids from the beginning that, you know, there's only – Two people in life. You can either work for an asshole or be an asshole. Choose early. You know which one I chose. The recruitment industry is going through a time of unprecedented challenge. And all of us have been affected to a greater or lesser extent. From what I can see from my vantage point, speaking to hundreds of recruitment business owners around the world, for the vast majority of recruiters, this is a very painful time. What about you? Do you have a plan for the next 30, 60, and 90 days? All of my clients have a plan to navigate this crisis because I've helped them to create one. I've survived multiple economic cycles, including the dot-com bubble, the crash after 9-11, the great recession of 08-09. And listen, I know this is different to anything we've seen before, but based on my past experience, I'm confident that I'm getting through this in decent shape and I'm determined to bring my clients with me. So if you're ready to be proactive instead of reactive, and you're open to getting some guidance and support, then you're invited to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. I will be focused on helping you to get clarity on your situation and create a plan for moving forward. By the way, I don't have all the answers and I'm not promising miracles. I can promise you'll leave the call feeling focused and re-energized with a solid plan for moving forward with or without my help. Once again, it's www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So, wow. So by the way, guys, um, for everyone listening, uh, David, one thing I 
admire and respect about you is you've got, you're very creative and prolific. You've, you get ideas, you action them and you work fast, like the deadlines that you've hit for, you know, the publishing of the books and so on. Uh, so that's, that's amazing. And I, I love how you've created this whole other um, revenue stream, which also is allowing you to help, you know, thousands more people than you could possibly place, you know, through your headhunting firm. By the way, uh, anyone listening who is interested in how to uh, generate an extra income stream with career coaching, I have uh, I've done a webinar about that. I'll put the link in the in the show notes so you can check that out. Um, you threw a couple of things in there that I want to follow up on. One was the stroke. Uh, when when did that happen, David? That was Easter Friday, two thousand. And eight. 2008. Thank 2009. See, it's so long ago. And it's so funny. Well, it's not funny that I had a stroke. Well, actually, for me, it's funny I had a stroke. Because for the first four days, it's, it's, like, it's over Easter weekend, right? So I'm at yeah. this hospital. Everybody's on holiday. So there were five neurosurgeons. And I saw a different neurosurgeon every day. And, and I stopped being able to talk probably half an hour into arriving at the hospital. They, they didn't, they weren't able to give me the shot quite in time. Um, obviously, cause I can talk, but, um, um, I remember the first day that, uh, I was awake and, uh, this young doctor and we're now friends, this young doctor, you know, stands in intensive care and my wife is, sta- is standing there and he's really good looking like Marcus Welby, good looking. And he puts his arm and my wife is hot and he puts his arm around her <laughs> And he pulls her in. He says, brace yourself. He may stay in that vegetated state for the rest of his life. Well, my goodness. I can hear all this, right? The IO is fine. The processor is fine. The IO doesn't work, right? So for the next, and you, you're probably going to have to bleep this out as well, but this is a true story. And this is going to go in Gorilla Marketing for Job Hunters 4.0. Talk about motivation. So for the first four days, I only wanted to say one thing. And I finally said it on the, on the morning of the fifth day, because the guy that I was like, I'm on the geriatrics ward by this time. And I'm, I'm on the ward in the hospital where they put all the old people who they want to make comfortable because there's nothing they can do for them. And this guy next to me in my room says, David, David, shut up. I said, what? He said, shut up. You're screaming. I said, I was screaming. I said, and you can hear me and I'm talking and you can understand me because I could talk in my head, but it wasn't coming out. Right. right. He says, yes. And I said, well, what am I screaming? He said, well, you've been screaming, fuck you, for the last 15 minutes. And I'm laughing. Because for, for four days, I just wanted to tell that doctor, fuck you. And, and in fact, you know, my wife didn't know that I was still in here until um, the middle of the fourth day. She came in and I had taken, sounds so pathetic, right? I had taken this styrofoam cup I had with water in it. And I had taken my straw or my, and carved a heart and put my initials and her initials in the cup. I could not talk to her, and I couldn't write, couldn't hold a pen. But I could do, it took me, and it took me a long time to do this. And she looks at me, and she says, you're in there. I said, yes, yes, I am. So it's the next day. This is the funny part. The next day, when, after he told me that to shut up, I, um, the doctor walks in, fifth neurosurgeon, right? It's Easter Sunday, and, um, or Easter Monday. And um, she walks in, and she says, which one of you are Mr. Perry? And I said, that would be me. And she looks at my chart. She goes, no, that's not you. So I said, no, it's me. She said, no, no. It's, well, I've been told Mr. Perry can't talk, you know. 
And I said, well, it's me. I mean, ask him his name. And I don't remember his name. He goes, oh, I'm so, anyway, so we lied. She said, well, you can talk. I said, clearly. So my wife doesn't know this, right? So she walks in and she got the, she, we met in the army. Wonderful woman, wonderful woman, 40 years now. We met in the army. She walks in in the morning and she's trying to keep a brave face, right? But it's not looking good. And everything she's been told, it's not good. So she walks in and she's got that look on her face. And I looked at her and I said, would you go home and get my briefcase and bring it back? She said, you can talk. I said, clearly. And we have a lot of work to do. And we did. Because unbeknownst to us in the background, um, a couple of our competitors here in Ottawa uh, had found out that uh, I'd had a stroke. And my client list is quite well known because, you know, people brag or they used to brag. And so they ran around to all my clients and told them all that I was brain dead. Oh, my goodness. You're joking. You can't, you can't make this shit up. Technically, they were, right. it was, they were right, but not for long. So I found this out the hard way. And, and all of a sudden, all of my clients are calling and we can't answer the phone because I can't answer the phone. I can't talk to them. So I get out 10 days later and I start calling my clients back and I tell them the story. And so they all love me or love us. And so they delayed the searches or they canceled the search and so that I wouldn't be under stress. <clears throat> well, you're self-employed. You're under stress to, you know, to close a month. Um, and I got lucky because when that happened, um, the Wall Street Journal article came out. They had done an, an article, they'd done an interview with me in October of 2008. And um, the young uh, journalist who did it, Sarah Needleman, brought, as, as the story goes, if I remember correctly, brought it to her editor who didn't believe that the story was true, but some of the stunts I pulled, you know. Um, so uh, he wanted her to dig up um, some dirt on me because at that time, there was a whole a bunch of recruiters come coaches that were scamming people. I mean, that was the days of um, not uh, Drake Bean Mori, but um, oh, there was an outfit. Um, 20 years, well, I guess they've been gone now for about 10 years, but they got sued for $35 billion. So they're gone. Oh my goodness. Um, and if I could remember their name, but it's a senior's moment, uh, you'd, you'd shake your head. Um, going, oh, yeah, I remember those guys. So um, where was I? Hold on. I was talking about, um, yeah, so this, so I, I nothing, so he, he sent her to do, an, uh, find some dirt on me so they could do another piece that would be a more sensational piece. Couldn't find anything. They, they interviewed, I gave them 10 people to interview and they did something like 90 plus. And um, then they finally released the article. And that's where it was on the front page of the business section of the Wall Street Journal. And that's where I got the nickname, the rogue recruiter, because that's what they nicknamed me. I like it. Oh, I, I loved it. I mean, they were so, they were so worried that I was going to be offended. And they told me, they called me up and said, I can't, I can't let you read the article because it's going to come out. It's going to be on the front page. You got bumped to the front page of the business section, such as life. But I can tell you that we're, we've nicknamed you the rogue recruiter, and I just want you to know that. Are you going to be offended? And I said, no, I think that's great. <laughs> so the article came out just as I'm tanking because all my clients have uh, stopped their business. And right. uh, we just went into retrograde. Um, it just took off. And uh, um, the reason. What do you mean? Like, what was the response when that article came out? Well, you know, I wrote Hiring Greatness. I don't know if you've read that book. I haven't yet. I've got it on order. Uh, so that, that book, that book is my 1000th search. The gentleman, so it's a true story. And the yeah. gentleman that's in uh, Fred, the gentleman that's in hiring greatness as the hiring manager called me up because he'd read the article and he said, hi, my name is Fred. You know, I can't remember his, I can't pronounce his last name. And, um, 
He said, are you the rug recruiter? And I said, uh, yeah. And so we had this conversation. He said, listen, I've hired the, I've hired the, I won't tell you who they are, but it's the top two search firms in the world. Hired them both over the last two years to hire me a COO. And both of them taken all my money, $125,000 each. And none of them have produced anything. I said, are you any good? I said, yeah. I said, I'd like to hire you. And I said, well, you know, if you want to hire me, and I'm thinking, oh, God. Because I know it's my thousand search coming up, right? And, I, and this should be a good search. This should be one to write a blog article about. So I said, listen, I'll send you a contract. So I sent him a contract, and I sent him a demand for two first-class tickets to L.A. and a retainer. And I think the retainer was, was a third at the time, a third, a third, and a third. A third and two-thirds. So I think it was $25,000. Okay. So he sends me the two tickets and a check for $25,000. So I said, okay. So we fly down to meet Fred Tashinsky, great man. And he starts to tell me his uh, story. And I won't blow it because you need to read the first four pages of Hiring Greatness, and then you'll read the rest of it. Okay. But um, no, I'll tell you. So what happened was, he, so he tells me, so, so I go to ask him some questions, right? I go to ask him some questions. We've done the pleasantries. And, and I, I said, can I ask you some questions? And he goes, no. He said, you work for me now. And I said, oh, really? And I reached into my vest pocket. And you get, this is all in the book. I reached into my vest pocket. I pull out the, uh, the envelope. I, I hold out a check. I said, do you recognize this? He goes, yeah, it's my check. I said, great. So I haven't cashed it yet. I said, I flew down here to ask you three questions. I'm going to ask you the three questions. If you answer the three questions correctly, I'm going to cash your check. We're going to do the search. We're going to find, find your COO. Answer one of them wrong, and I tear through the, the, uh, the signature block, and we go for lunch. And I didn't ask him if that was okay. I just asked the first question. Anyway, it goes on from, and that's the, that's the opening of the book. I love it. That, that was my 1,000th search. So okay. I wrote the book based on that 1,000th search, what we did, how we did it, why we did it. So that's the search. And then executive recruiting for dummies um, is, the, is the actual functional, here's what you have to do as a dummy um, if you can't follow it in hiring greatness. Um, that's what you actually have to do to get there. I don't remember what the original question was you asked me, but that was my answer. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So I, I need to go back for the stroke because I feel like... Stroke, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine what that would feel like if you can't... Like you're thinking, but you can't actually see it. I, it must have been sort of claustrophobic. Oh, what? It, was, it was, honest to God, scariest... Second scariest moment of my life. My scariest was handing my daughter over to heart surgeons when she was three months old and not knowing oh. what, the, what the result was going to be. She's 21, by the way. Wow. So we know what the result was. But that was the, that was the second scariest. Third scariest was, you know, um, um, proposing to my wife, who's my business partner, Anita Martell. Right. Yeah. That's a whole nother so story. The stroke was, again, I get the stroke. I got lucky. Um, I'm sitting at home. I, I uh, and when I say I was learning to talk, I, I, I could speak words, but I couldn't put concepts together. Like the term can and not were two different words. And, it, and it's not like I understood cannot when I spoke. And I had Tourette's for about, that was funny. God, it was funny for me because I got over it um, for about six months. Yeah, I said the wow. most inappropriate stuff at the most inappropriate moment. And I won't tell you any of it. Oh, the most in inappropriate moments. Um, but yeah, no, it was terrifying. And it, and it, when I started to be well, which really took probably two months, 
maybe three. You have to ask my, my wife. Um, I was up for a good 45 minutes to an hour and, and I'll, I'll say conscious because I was awake longer than yeah. that, but thinking wise and ability to speak probably 45 minutes to an hour. Um, so that's when I did my calls with clients. Wow. Uh, that's when I did my recruiting. With, so we told no one, you know, at the end of the day, we ended up telling, I told the clients that, that canceled the searches because they needed to know. They knew me well enough not to say anything. We denied it to everybody else. I didn't tell candidates. I didn't tell new clients. Um, and I just focused but like a laser on who I needed to talk to, what I needed to say, why they needed to hear it. And that was it. And that's still what I do today. So let, let me get this straight, David. So this is every day that you were working for the first few months while you were recovering. The first sort of hour you were, um, you, you couldn't, you know, like you had to get warmed up and get up to speed and then. So whatever, so a good question to ask about quarter to 10 okay. to quarter to 11 every day. Yeah. I was a hundred percent. Okay. Wow. So you had to be focused like a laser for that hour. Yep. Beyond that, I was um, sleeping or resting. You yeah. know, the doctors all told me to take two years off. They, and I remember laughing. The doctor <laughs> said, you know, I'll write you a note to take, take you know, get you a year off of work. And I said, that's not going to work. He said, why? He says, because, you know, I got a partner. So oh, that's fine. I said, listen, my partner's my wife. She's not going to take any excuses. I said, she doesn't care. <laughs> she did. I thought you were going to say, because my boss is a real asshole. He won't accept this note. Yeah, I didn't want to be self-deprecating. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. And how long did that continue for, David? Um. I mean, when did I make a full recovery? Yeah. Or, or when was it back up to? Well, yeah, your, your recovery, how long did that take and what did that involve? Because had you not told me that story, I would have no idea that you'd, you'd suffered a stroke. So the first, yeah, the, 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 I was 100% billable um, and working probably in about a year. A year, yeah. I, wow. I, I self-diagnosed and went to my doctors and I told them I had sleep apnea. And he said, no, okay. you don't. And I said, yes, I do. And I said, and I'm suicidal, by the way. Wow. So we need, to do, we need to do something about both of those. So I got medicated. Uh, it took me two more visits where I had to literally uh, threaten the doctor that I've told my wife this. I've written it down. Um, so now it's your problem. So if I do something stupid, I said, you're going to lose your license. So yes. We did all the studies. I got medicated, and then I went and did a sleep study, and lo and behold, I had sleep apnea. Um, I was waking up every 59 seconds. Oh. I had severe sleep apnea. So they gave me this mask. Oh, my God. The first day I used it, oh, I was up like 12 hours and totally lucid. It was fantastic. So now I've got a CPAP, and uh, I plug that in and juice up every single night. It's, I don't really need it as much, but I do it anyway. It's like, wow. Um, and to get back in the game and to learn language, I did a couple things happened again by accident. One day I was watching Oprah, swear to God, I've never watched Oprah before in my life. Swear to God, swear to God. <laughs> but I'm watching Oprah that day and she interviews an author who had had a stroke and she was a neurosurgeon, but they didn't find her for like 12 or 13 hours. So she lost everything. And, um, to the point where she was locked away and uh, they tried to teach her to, you know, to hold a fork. No, it was, but she wrote a book because her mother, after seven or eight years, walked in the hospital, picked her up, took her home. 
and uh, did the therapy herself. And so uh, she's fine now. She's a great writer. She's a wow. good, great speaker. And um, what she learned then that she put in the book, and this is now a known fact, it's called uh, My Stroke of Insight. That's the book, My Stroke of Insight. And I have handed that book out to probably 30 people over the last four or five years, people that have either had a stroke or they have a loved one that's had a stroke. I go out, get a copy of the book, tell them my story and say, read the book, you'll understand. Um, So I'm reading that book and I get the fact that uh, my brain's a muscle and everybody else said go to sleep and rest. No, I had to try to use it more and more and more. So um, the hardest part of the first couple of years were the massive headaches I would get when I was trying to think Mm -hmm. or write. And learning to read and write again was a challenge and speak as well. So what I did, um, and my my editor now knows this uh, as the truth, what I did was one afternoon I called my editor and said, hey, Gorilla Marketing for Job Hunters is five years old now. You know, we got her four years old, whatever it was. We got to do a second edition. And she said, really? Is there that much change? I said, oh, my God. I said, I'll I'll, I'll write a new book and it will be 80% new content. She said, you know what? 20% new content is fine. I said, fine, 20% new content. I wrote 80% new content. (laughs) Um, And uh, as I'm hanging up the phone, my wife comes around the corner in the home office, and and she says, what are you you doing? You can't really read. You can't write, because I couldn't use my hands yet. You can't read, you can't write, and you're really only awake an hour a day. I said, yeah, but I'm I'm awake. So I've made this commitment. My, uh, My editor said, can you have it to me in a year? This was June? I said, no, I'll give it to you in September. I got so many things on the go, I just don't have time for this to waste. So um, she just shook her head and walked away. And uh, she comes in the next day, and I've got this giant, I had at the time, giant whiteboard in my office at home. It's four feet by eight, horizontal across the wall. She comes in, she says, what's that? I could not write. I could draw. Hmm. Weird. So she goes, oh my God, that's the book. I said, yeah, I had drawn out in in pictures, the entire book from start to finish on the whiteboard. And wow. then what I had to do was figure out how do I fill in that content. So um, Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters, the first one, I was lucky or smart. I, it was lucky. I wasn't smart. I reached out to a bunch of my friends in the recruiting business when I wrote Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters. And I said, listen, I've written this book and it's insanity. I said, you read this book, you think I'm crazy. However, I want you to read it because if you like it, I think you'll see it. I said, I said to almost, I think you'll get what's, what I'm getting at. If you like it, then I'm going to invite you to write like a 500 to 800 word piece for the book. So I did that to um, Ryan Thorne, to Shallery Steckroll, uh, to whole bu- you know Glenn Gauchmer, a whole bunch of people that were that are in the still in the business today, um, and they all wrote a piece. So when I had the stroke and I'm doing the second book. I reach out to them again and said, hey, I'm do- they don't know I had the stroke. Um, I'm doing the second edition, and I want you to write on this. And I invited, invited a bunch of other people. So the second edition of the book has about 28 people in it who all wrote 500, 800-word pieces. And then I did a bunch of case studies. So at the end of the day, it is 80% new information. 15% of it's not mine. It comes from them. And they got, they got, total, they got full credit in the book. I did that for the third edition and I'll do it for the fourth edition. Um, and that's how I wrote the book. And, and from there, it was that a second edition launching it in Detroit where we started the, the boot camp. 
So, you know, when you're faced with, um, someone asked me this a couple of years ago, why do you do all this um, shit? Because um, I can. And why bother to think about, like, I'm so naive. My philosophy is why bother to, th- if you call it a philosophy, why bother to think about what you can do when you can just go and do it? And at, at the end of the day, you know, we're well enough off. I've made enough money. I've got enough things that I don't have to worry about who gets credit. So it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit and you just want to solve the problem. Um, so that's why all these books, you know, um, Hiring Greatness. Can you be a recruiter? Absolutely. Read the book. Executive recruiting. Can you be a recruiter after this? Absolutely. But Mark, you and I both know how much work is involved. Um, it's like, are you, are you a Trekkie? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Good man. Okay. So I'll, I'll continue this. So there's a, there's a fine line between reading the manual, right? And driving the enterprise. Anybody can read this like recruiting. Anybody can read the manual, actually doing it a different story. So hiring greatness and executive recruiting for dummies were not written to put recruiters out of business. Mm-hmm. They were written to make hiring managers more informed more informed so that they know that when they hire us, we can do the job. And HR, who usually generally mostly can't do the job, um, can rest knowing that they wrote, that they read the book as well. And that if I don't do all these steps, uh, they can crucify me and set me on fire in the parking lot and justify it because I said I was gonna do this and I didn't do it. Um, so the book wasn't written to put recruiters out of business. The business, the books were written to put HR back where HR needs to be in personnel, okay? Salaries, benefits, making sure people are happy and organizing the Christmas party. And I don't mean, and I don't mean that in a negative way. And uh, although I can't pull up his name off the top of my head right now, the, the, um, the impetus to do hiring greatness. So this is f- eight years after I've written the, the last Gorilla book was twofold. One, I had been at a, at a dinner where the guy who wrote, that's, um, that's whose name I'm blanking on, the guy who wrote um, Why We Hate HR, was speaking to about 300 people at dinner in Ottawa uh, about the book and blah, blah, blah. And not really backpedaling, but kind of. But I'm sitting around this table where not many people in HR know who I am at that dinner. And they're all going, they're all denying that they do that or that this guy's crazy or that there's any, any, and I'm thinking, oh my God, you guys just don't get it. So I went back and I said, okay, check mark. I got to write a book on, on this, so filed it away. And then one day I'm listening to Terry Matthews who, who built Mitel and Newbridge and all these great companies. He's arguing with another friend of mine at an event, not arguing, discussing um, with Ed and, uh, and Ed's about 92. And the two of them are having this back and forth from the, from the front of the room and the back of the room. There's about 200 tech people in the room. And I suddenly looked around and I realized that they didn't get it. I got it. Maybe three or four other people in the room got it, what he's talking about. Um, but the rest of the room didn't. And I thought, oh my God, if I don't capture what I know, um, that would be a real crime. So I sat and because he, everyone's gonna pass. Um, and um, what, he, what Terry talks about and how he goes about doing business, a lot of that's in the book. Um, not his principles, but not his ideas, but a lot of the principles. Mm -hmm. And so when I sat down to write the book, it was with um, um, Why We Hate HR, 
Um, and, and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, a lot of people weren't going to understand how to build a business correctly uh, in tech um, when these two guys decided they didn't want to talk about this stuff anymore. Uh, so that was the impotence. So the guy that wrote my, uh, Why We Hate HR, he got the first book and Terry got the second one. That's interesting. Listen, you made a couple of throwaway comments earlier that I want to pick up on. What was the Starbucks coffee caper? Starbucks coffee cup caper um, is an interesting uh, uh, job search tactic. Okay. It actually didn't start off as Starbucks. It started off as Tim Hortons. Of I actually, I wasn't exactly Canadian, right? I wasn't actually the inventor of this. A guy by the name of Daryl Prale and Alan Zander are two guys that I had, I had uh, recruited and put in a company called CML. And they took the company from worst to first and into a uh, almost 3x uh, multiple exit. And their, their um, reward for doing that was to be axed by the company with no, with no notice that, that had bought them. And um, so when they came back, I had destroyed their lives. I mean, they've been there for a year and a half or so, but I destroyed their lives. So I took them out of another place and put them so- somewhere. So Daryl turns to me one day and he says, so are you actually any good at this shit? Um, I'm writing guerrilla marketing for job owners, right? He says, but are you actually any good at this shit? I said, yeah. And he said, prove it. And so I said, okay. So what I did is I took Daryl and Alan on as a team, a pair, and I marketed them. And so I did all the, I did all the guerrilla um, recruiting stuff in the background, and they prepared the, uh, the marketing stuff. I, I did the resumes, and I, or I worked on them, but... They did a bunch of stuff, and we had we had a ten point plan. One of the plans, one of the points, Daryl came up with. Daryl Pray, he is now he's now the chief marketing officer for VanillaSoft. VanillaSoft.com. You can see his stuff. You should follow him. He's, he's brilliant. Anyway, um, um, he came up with this idea that he was going to send a picture of himself in a coffee cup caper via FedEx, saying, "You need me." picture holding a sign saying, you need me, here's why. Just to spark a conversation. And he sent it to 10 companies and he got eight callbacks and he got six interviews. Anyway, and it goes on and on. And all these stats are actually in Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters 2.0. Okay. Because that, that, that opens the book because I, you know, uh, Alan said, well, you know, how do we know you're going to be doing this stuff? And I love Alan. Alan Zander. He's now the, C- he's now the CEO. He's been there for more than 10 years of Data Kinetics. These are the guys that um, MasterCard and Visa and Home Depot use their technology to um, authorize 14,000 um, transactions a second. So wow. that's how okay. the technology is. Been around for ages. <clears throat> so I said, well, how, how, do you know, how do we know you're actually going to do this? Fair question. So I phoned up um, Peter Clayton. So Peter Clayton runs TotalPicture.com. Okay. So what Peter did was Peter did three I think it's three. It might be four. He did three interviews with Daryl and Alan. He did an interview with them, uh, a podcast interview with them, asking them, you know, why are we doing this? What's the situation? What are you guys doing? So they talked about what their situation was and how I was going to market and how we, we were marketing this whole thing and what my part was. And then Peter followed them through the search. About midway, he phoned them up and interviewed both of them again, asking them questions about how it was going, what are you doing, all that kind of stuff. And then after they landed, uh, the same thing. So Peter Clayton, who runs TotalPitcher.com, uh, did this and, uh, you know, in, and kept me um, in check. So does the shit really work? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, it has always been feet to the fire all the time. Does that answer that question? 
Yeah, it sort of does, but I'm I still understand what were they physically sending with the oh, coffee. So I, I, I'm sorry, Mark. So so what you do is so let's talk about the Starbucks coffee cup caper because yeah. no one in the states knows who the heck Tim Hortons is, right? Sure. So you you walk into Starbucks and most Starbucks employees now know this because it's been going on for ten years, right? And you ask them for ten empty cups. They'll give you ten empty cups. You go home, um, you go to Staples, and you get ten of those uh, boxes that are mailers. Okay. Yeah. You take your gorilla one-page resume. Yeah. With your one-page gorilla uh, cover letter that says, you know, you got this problem. I know you got this problem, and I've done this, this, and this. We should sit down and have a coffee. Ah. So what you're doing is you stick that in in a Starbucks uh, coffee cup, yep. a clean Starbucks coffee cup, a paper Starbucks coffee cup, not a used one, not a porcelain one. I've had all these questions before. Um, you put it in the box and you send it uh, two-day FedEx. Yeah. Because what happens is it's cheaper. Yeah. And you get a ping, ping, that tells you that your box has arrived at its destination and you wait okay. 45 minutes and then you call the person and say, hey, Mark, David Perry, I think you just got my package. Yeah. You know, and they, so they, 45 minutes, they've got it. They've opened it. They're laughing. They're going, what is this? Because it's, it's a Starbucks coffee cup uh, and there's a resume cover letter in it that's inviting you to have a coffee with them. And you're reading this letter real, realizing, oh, my God, this guy has solved all these problems that I have. And you've, and you've written this down because you've networked with the newly departed and found out these are the issues that these people have. And then written that letter and that cover and that resume just for them and sent it. And they laugh and go, oh, my God, am I on candid camera? No, man, there's no cameras in that building that I know. <laughs> I and I just want to have coffee and uh, you know, tell you how I solved that problem. That's funny. It occurs to me you – you could use the same approach for prospecting, right? Yes, you can. <laughs> so uh, there's one more thing I need to know because you mentioned earlier and I'm really curious. Facebook targeted ads you also mentioned and, can, and how does that fit into the, to the equation? I had this kid in 2006 or 2007, Grant, right. I can't remember Grant's last name, call me and say he'd read the book. And he's just graduating from Pepperdine University. And I said, great, congratulations. He said, well, you know, I want to try some of this stuff, but um, I'm not sure how it's going to work. I said, well, it's worked for everybody else. What's your problem? He says, not a problem. He said, but, you know, I have a very particular group that I want to target. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I ran um, the Gay and Lesbian Association at Pepperdine University. And I want to work for a PR, a gay-friendly PR firm in Seattle. I said, oh, okay. Um, I said, what's the problem? He said, well, how do I do that? I said, oh, that's easy. I said, uh, so it was me. Um, I would do the research, find out the firms, and then I would set up a targeted email. I, was, I, would tar I would set up a targeted Facebook campaign so that when they come online, the, the, your message only appears to those 10 or 15 people that you choose want to uh, get that message and would be open to having a call with you because for some reason you've done the research and found out that they are LBGTQ. And he said, will that work? I said, try it and find out. Now he did it and he was very successful. And then he wrote about it. He actually blogged about it. And that was the first time that had been done. I can go back and find it. I still have the, uh, I, I interviewed him a couple years later on video, but he did this. He got the interviews. Um, he got the offers. He didn't take anything. He took something in LA instead, but this is where this, 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 Facebook targeted Facebook advertising concept came from. So when, when you know when you target in target when you put in roll in for my new job when you roll in the uh, 
networking with the newly departed, you do a one-page resume that, that probably got your picture on it, got logos in it, got quotes about how great you are, so you don't tell people how great you are, you let somebody else tell them how great you are, you know, second-party, third-party endorsement. So when you combine that with the um, email chain letter and the uh, targeted Facebook advertising campaign, because that's what I did with my daughter, um, you get interviews, you get, you get meetings. And out of those meetings, if you've got enough juice and ask the right questions, they're going to want to hire you, either for a contract to try you out or permanently to take you off the street before somebody else does. So that's what that Facebook, uh, targeted Facebook advertising campaign is all about. Well, listen, David, we're way over time here. So uh, thank you so much. You talk too much. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I hope we get a chance to do it again. Have a great, uh, have a great week. Thank you very much, Mark. Be good. All right. Thank you. Take care, David. Happy Canada Day. Thank you so much for listening to the Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.